2: Hi everyone and welcome to episode 368 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Hello, Adam. How's
1: it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. I am sitting next to a nitro cold brew from Starbucks. So I have uh, all of the caffeine in my body.
2: Yeah, uh, I was just telling you before we started recording that the, fir- uh, the first time I tried to order one of those, actually it wasn't the first, I'd had it previously, the second time I went to order it, I tried ordering a venti, and they told me they don't do that. You're so. just
1: not allowed, yeah. You're <laughs> not
2: allowed, which should tell you how much I like coffee, where I was like, can I have a venti of this, the nitro cold brew, please, yeah. thank you.
1: Yeah, they like unequivocally and were they're like, like, no, no. That's too super- because <laughs> it's very, like, it's supercharged, this is not an ad read, we already did our ad read for today's <laughs> episode, which you'll hear in the middle of the episode for our sponsor, but Starbucks is not sponsoring this, we just... Have it religiously. So, um, Okay, so before I get into what today's episode is all about, do you want to tell people how they can get in contact with us? We haven't done an intro together in forever, I'm just realizing. We
2: haven't. Um, Yeah, you can go to our website, professionalbooknerds.com. All of our social links are on there. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at ProBookNerds and um you can email us at professionalbooknerds at com.
1: yes you can so today's episode is an in-person interview i did with Philippa gregory and i was in new york city this was one of the few times when i had an event or not an event uh, a live thing that i was doing that joe couldn't be at and you were less than pleased with me when this... I wasn't
2: less it wasn't your fault i was just less than pleased in general yeah
1: Um, so as I have come to saying, her full name actually is British treasure, Philippa Gregory. I don't know Mm -hmm. if anyone knows that. Yeah. Um, like Emma Thompson as well. And, and Dame Judi Dench, just British treasure, Philippa Gregory. Uh, you probably know her from, I don't know, all of her books, the white queen, the last Tudor, uh, three sisters, three Queens, uh, literally every single thing you can possibly think of the other Bowling girl. Uh, she has a new book. That comes out if you're listening to this on Monday, it comes out tomorrow, which is called Tidelands. And it is the beginning of a new series that she's writing. Uh, The difference amongst her other books is in the past, she wrote a lot about kind of highborn uh, royalty and things of that nature. This is more of the, um, I almost called them peasants, but I guess, you know, kind of like the common folk that you would say in in these time frames. So, start of a new series, and she really cracked me up because. it's no secret she's a little bit older and she said she's like so i started a new series and i don't want to get too sidetracked because the publisher you know doesn't want me to die before i finish this series but uh. i have to tell you when when we sit down with these people like 99.9 percent of the time authors are amazing but if we sit down with someone who's a really big deal we expect them to kind of have talking points we were just talking about someone who's coming up they had to go through media training um because they're not used to being interviewed and I was like, yeah, I'm excited, but I imagine she won't. No, she, she was, like, so into the conversation. We talked for, like, 45 minutes. She was just, oh, what a delightful human.
2: What a British treasure.
1: What a British treasure. Exactly. So I'm very excited if you guys to listen to that. Yeah. Um, Are there other things you think people should know about before?
2: I don't think so. I don't think so either. Okay.
1: All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoy this very fancy, very British episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Hi everyone, it's Adam, and I am beyond excited to say that I am joined by Philippa Gregory, who is, simply put, one of the greatest authors of our time. She has written countless best-selling novels, including The White Princess, The Last Tudor, The Other Bowling Girl, and dozens of others that you have certainly heard of and most likely read. Uh, She is well known for bringing historical women out of the darkness of being lost in time and shining lights on their stories. Her latest novel, Tidelance, will be out in August. So first off, Dilpa, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: It's a real pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yes.
1: So we always like to start our podcast by letting people hear about your latest work. So would you mind giving us an introduction to Tidelands?
0: Oh, well, Tidelands is set, first of all, in a very marginal part of England. It's the south coast, not the beautiful white cliffs of Dover that everybody knows <laughs> and not the you know, lovely uh, rocky coves of Cornwall that everybody knows. It's the south coast in Sussex, and it's an area that I know and love very well. I spent two or three years there when I was uh, a young woman uh, working on the conservation of this Mm harbour. And the harbour itself is quite a small area. When the tide comes in it's very, very beautiful. Mm -hmm. You know, little ships come in and bob about. And when the tide goes out, it's literally a sea of mud and reeds (laughs) and you know, remaining bits of water. So it's not at all a glamorous place. Right. But to me it always had a very haunting, quite dreamlike sort of beauty. And in the novel it's so important because it's a marginal place. It's pretty well forgotten by the rest of the country it's not very prosperous it's not very interesting it's uh, a harbour and outside it there is a little tiny island and beyond it is the Isle of Wight so I started off with this place and then into it I, I found my heroine and she's a midwife and a very poor woman. Her husband has deserted her. She has two children. So she too is marginal. Like, she has to find a way to make a living in a world where it's not easy for women. It's very hard for single women. And her work is herbalism and midwifery. So she's working in a very marginal area. She's working in an area which, in the next decade or so, people are going to declare women can't work in, and the male physicians are going to try and take it over with what they have as like more intrusive methods of birthing and she's working in herbalism which people are going to start defining as witchcraft so she is really very much on the edge of survival but also on the edge of respectability and she also lives because she has the sight because she comes from a family of women who have a real sense of the other world she's on the sort of the margin of the real world and the liminal world and so you have this character that I really love because she's very, she's not black and white. She's not good or bad. When you meet her, you know that you've got some complexities there. So that's she's my heroine, and um, she lives her. She lives very close to her brother, who is a parliamentarian, and we're in the, the middle of the English Civil Wars. So Charles I has been in, beaten and imprisoned, and her. Pu- brother went away to be a parliamentary soldier and now he's come back again. So into this sort of fairly shifting, unreliable landscape and unreliable politics, unreliable powers, into this comes James, who is a royalist spy and a Roman Catholic in hiding. So he could be executed on two bases, one for treason and one for heresy. And he is there because Charles I has been imprisoned. Harrisbrook Castle, just across the Solent. So you've got into this very, very uncertain circumstances. You've got the introduction of extreme danger, extreme jeopardy. So, I mean, that's just, it's got to be a great story. You've yeah. just got everything you wanted there, I, really.
1: And I love that you're you talk about, that was, you've certainly talked about this book before, because that was like a perfect description, but when you talk about, you led with the Tidelands of being the fact that when the water's there, it's beautiful, when it and it shifts and it's not exactly the most, you know, endearing place to stare, to look at, but I feel like that really plays well with, you were mentioning the, the shifting tides of, of the time and what's going on. It feels very kind of apropos to use it almost as like a, like a metaphor. Like the Thailands are very much similar to the time and, and the experiences that are going on in that time. Of period.
0: It, absolutely, I think it is a metaphor, and I think that's why I was so, when I realized I was going to set the book there, I loved it so much. Mm. Um, and the other thing is, is that all of my books up until now, with the exception of two or three, have been very much set in indoors, Yes. in Tudor courts, in very formal circumstances, mm-hmm. with very powerful people. And this book's a real departure, so the Tidelands, that the countryside is actually a hero in it, really. It's almost a character.
1: Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I wanted to ask you, you're so well known for all of these titles that are in the courts and, and royalty and things like that. So what made you want to focus on common people instead for this particular story?
0: I think for some time I've been feeling that although I'm writing about the courts, although mm. people call them the Tudor court novels quite rightly and about the royal family, it's actually the 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 experiences of normal women caught up in that Mm -hmm. that have always been of interest to me. So, for instance, you know, before Anne Boleyn is a queen, she is uh, a not-very-valued member of not not even an aristocratic family. Mm -hmm. Um, Jane Seymour, equally not-very-valued member of a noble family, Mm -hmm. but, you know, not great at that point. So a lot of these people that we end up as royals Do not start as royals. And also, I'm I'm genuinely interested anyway in the history of, you know, what used to be called in English history, the common people. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I think the history of labouring people and working people is really where our history all comes from. Mm -hmm. The royals really are just uh, the scum floating on top, or if you prefer (laughs) the cream. But it it really, that's not where reality lives. Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking about your own family history, Mm -hmm. you know, not many of us go back to Henry VIII. Right. An awful lot of us go back to some poor laborer in a field um, dying of some disease. Well, and, it, and it makes a lot of
1: sense, again, as I kind of talked about in the intro, as a person who is bringing these women to light who maybe didn't get their proper due, what could be a better example of that as these common people who almost certainly are an afterthought in the majority of the stories. that
0: we... And also I'm working on a a non-fiction at the moment on the history of women in England Mm. and uh, that of course takes me, because because it's the history of women rather than the history of just royals, it of course takes you to these lives which are so full of incident Mm. and the records are so rich and everybody says oh you won't find anything but actually there is, you know... An unimaginable extent of material, which it's just we don't know it because we haven't looked for it. When you look for it, you find fantastic amounts. Of
1: I actually wanted to ask you about that. That's that was going to be. I'm glad I didn't ask the apparently obvious question because you answered it beforehand. I, where did you find the research for the common people you mentioned? You're working on a nonfiction. What types of stories and and content is out there that tells? you know, how they live their daily lives.
0: What there's a lot of is very, very specialist, very uh, uh very, very good history books. Mm-hmm. So they are written by, say, medieval specialists, or they're written by uh, Civil War specialists, Stuart specialists, um, or they're trade specialisms. so they're about medicine, the history of medicine, or the history of sex, mm-hmm. or the history of childbirth, Um or the history of fishing, you know, so, or boat building. So what I have to do is to read a huge amount of material and pick out of it the stuff that I want. And in every book, there is almost always something really surprising, really interesting, uh, particularly about women, which is not the headline, which is not what the book's actually about, but the, the writer has come, up, come across, you know, an interesting woman and mentioned maybe just her name, or when you look at even Saxon uh, wills, mm-hmm. so going back pre-1066, uh, you come across women landowners who are making wills, and you learn so much from the wills. You know what clothes they've got, you know what things they've got, you know who they love because they're leaving the stuff to them. Mm-hmm. So that there's a tremendous amount of material, but you have to really go and look for it. It's not obvious. So in
1: a situation like that where there is so much material available to you, do you sort of pick and choose the aspects that you think will make for an interesting story? Because I suppose it can be almost overwhelming to see the amount of research that you need to do at the beginning. So I guess, how do you decide when when you're ready to write the book when you're in the research process?
0: It's. I mean, it is overwhelming. I have to say, working on the non-fiction, mm. it does feel like wading through, shoveling treacle. I yeah. mean, there's so much stuff, it's so good. Mm-hmm. But how are you going to get it into... Um, these sections to make any sense of it to anybody else um, writing the novel is a very very different experience it's very much easier because it's supposed to be a novel so it's supposed to be fiction so it's a work of art so it, I go with my heart and with my creativity mm-hmm. on that and it's very much character driven so I so it's what what do I want this woman to do what as I kind of watch her unfold does she do how what happens with the story and all the research is in a sense read and put away Mm -hmm. so I never work with a research book open beside me because I don't want it to sneak into the fiction Mm -hmm. it's just got to be that I really understand her world Mm -hmm. so I know when she looks out of her front door I know what's growing in the garden I know where the sun's rising Mm -hmm. and I know where the tide is it's always where the tide is and I know that exactly but I don't necessarily even say so I might not even mention what she's growing in her garden in that passage but I always know
1: so so Thailand's is the beginning of a series correct okay so when you're creating a new a new series like this and especially one as you've said it's it's fiction but it's very much set in this place that exists and, and hasn't been written about as much how when you go about a series how much of the kind of whole arc of the story do you have thought out ahead of time
0: this is rather terrifying for all of us for my (laughs) publishers and for me so like I I really saw what I was going to do with book one Mm -hmm. and I really know book that I want to write that's set in 1890 Mm -hmm. but I've got two centuries between book one and there Mm -hmm. so uh, first of all I thought I would do probably a book a century and I get there quite quickly Uh but then I like the characters in book one so much I can't just leave them Uh and do their like great grandchildren I just can't Mm -hmm. so I went okay book two is going to be their children Mm -hmm. and we'll see their children so we're so we're doing one and a bit generations but we're still not out of the 17th century yet Yeah. so it's going to take a lot longer to get to the end of the series Sure. so there may be more books mm-hmm. everyone seems to be happy about that so that's okay Yeah, I was going
1: to say that, that part's a good thing yeah yeah no <laughs>
0: nobody minds about that but I do have to face the prospect if I'm taking two years over each novel mm-hmm. which is what I'm doing at the moment and enjoying that mm-hmm. that's much slower than I've done for all of my career right um uh, But that, you know, like I'm 65 now, Mm -hmm. you know, it would be unrealistic to have 40 years of work ahead of me. Uh So there's a degree of, like, urgency coming into my thinking about this. But certainly, if I could, I would like to take it up to First World War. Mm -hmm.
1: It's really... I I love that you mentioned about how much you're enjoying these characters um, that always reminds me anytime someone is talking about a series of books that spans generations and generations I always think of Ken Follett's work, The Pillars of the Earth Right. and I think about the, very much the same thing because he wrote several books in the series now and it, it, it spans these generations and I even as I'm reading them I remember the thinking at the end of the first book I'm like I really miss Tom the Builder who's yeah. the person that you start with yeah. And if I'm feeling that as a reader, I imagine you're very much feeling that
0: as an author. It, it is very odd to go, for, actually, for all of my books. So the um, the ones of the Cousins War series, when you, there was one point where I'd written the White Queen, mm-hmm. and I was completely on the side of Elizabeth Woodville, and I loved Elizabeth Woodville mm-hmm. like a dear friend. You know, we we'd been together for a year and a <laughs> half. We're very very close, and uh, I had to write the book of her enemy. Uh, the Red Queen, and I really had some weeks of struggle as to how to, as it were, change sides. And I went, this is a civil war. Everybody's doing it all the time. I'm just going to have to be like them. So I went, now I'm on the side of the Red Rose and Lancaster and Margaret Beaufort.
2: Today's episode is sponsored by Literati. Literati. When it comes to kids' books, it is so hard to find new ones that are educational and entertaining. So parents always get stuck reading the same ones over and over and over again. That really sounds great. <laughs> I'm glad I don't have kids. I
1: know. Yeah, neither, <laughs> of us have, neither of us have children. But we have nieces and nephews who love this. But, um, but yeah, it does So we hear your
2: stories. That's where Literati Book Club comes in to inspire your kids to fall in love with reading.
1: Yeah. So Literati is a subscription book club that makes it easy to find unique and interesting books for your kids. They mail five teacher approved books to your child every single month. It's a book club subscription that teachers buy for their own kids as well. So these are books that are completely approved by them. So no more guessing, no more searching. You don't need to worry about, as Jill said, reading the same books over and over and over again.
2: We were um, given an opportunity to send books to a kid in our family because we don't have our own children. Either of us, we each sent them to a niece uh, or nephew. You guys, these books—they're
1: amazing. So they sent us the boxes first, mm-hmm. so we could see them. And they do like they do them by age bracket. So depending on how old your the child is that you're, you're buying them for, I think it's zero to two or like two to four. I think the one that I had was five to seven, and they are a so my niece sent me a little video from her ipod touch she is six telling me how excited she was because i sent her a picture she's actually in disney world and took the time to send me it because it was so amazing your story is even more adorable though my
2: yeah my nephew is about 18 month old uh, 18 months old and my sister did an unboxing with him
1: like it's the cutest video uh, it's the cutest video i've ever <laughs> seen in my entire life so
2: and one of the she my sister when i gave her the box she opened it first before she gave it to him and one of the books is a little um one of those is a board book where there's textures on it and i guess it's part of one it's dinosaur themed and he has the one of the other books in the series that he loves so she was very excited (laughs) this but there's stickers with their names on it and cute little artwork and
1: the whole box is just absolutely adorable you can pick and choose which ones of the books you want to keep i'm telling you you're going to want to keep them all but no matter if you send back all the books all of the artwork and everything that they send you once a month is yours to keep right you do not have to worry about giving that back but again you're not going to want to get rid of any of these because they're just the most precious things i've ever seen so For a limited time, if you go to literatibooks.com and use the promo code PROBOOKNERDS for $20 off your first box, plus kids three and up get a special blacklight pen, which is super adorable, Uh, this is the best offer that they have ever offered anywhere. So To get it, all you have to do is go to literatibooks.com and then use the promo code PROBOOKNERDS.com all one word. We'll also put the link in our bio, and you'll find it on our social media as well. So one last time, that's literatibooks.com, and then use the promo code PROBOOKNERDS. Obviously, when you're writing about one historical woman that has a a counterpart, that is an easy way to determine, okay, I should write the story about the other half of this. But with so many women out there who deserve to have their story told. I'm curious how you sort of pick and choose who you want to write about. Is it just doing the research and finding one that particularly interests you as a, as a reader yourself?
0: Yes, and it, it ended up, it, The Cousins War is a sort of an accidental series mm-hmm. that I found by a number of complicated ways. I found The White Queen. And I knew of her daughter, the White Princess. Finally, the White Queen took me, obviously, to Margaret Beaufort, her enemy, her sort of lifelong enemy. But also, in reading about that period, I realised that Richard III's wife, Anne Neville, is completely neglected, but was a very powerful agent, both in Richard III's decision-making and life, and also in her own, in her own right, as um, the sister... And the daughter of this king, uh, you know, as the daughter of the kingmaker. So you've got these extraordinary women, and one does naturally lead you one to another. Quite often, mm-hmm. it's to someone in the same family. So it might be a mother or a daughter or sure. a sister. But also, just reading the material, you just go, how is, why has nobody paid attention to this person? She's so obviously a powerful agent, mm. she's so obviously worth a novel. She's worth a history book. And in some cases, there, there aren't even biographies. Mm-hmm. So the really famous one for me now, which is uh, Mary Boleyn, mm-hmm. uh, the sister of Anne Boleyn, so the, one of them is the other Boleyn girl, depending which view you take. Mm-hmm. When I came to write the novel about her, there was no biography about her at all. There was nothing. Mm-hmm. And now there are four published biographies. Mm-hmm. So she's become, in a sense, a historically recognised character since... She became famous in the fiction. Yeah, extraordinary.
1: So you have a rich background in studying 18th century uh, history. That was what you went to school for, I believe? Uh, Yeah,
0: I went to uh, the University of Sussex, first of all, to do my first degree, and that was English history. Mm -hmm. And then I specialized in the fiction of the 18th century commercial Mm -hmm. circulating libraries. And the reason for that was people borrowed books then they didn't buy them they were insanely expensive to buy and fiction wasn't considered worthy of the family library. Right. So you didn't really need to buy it, uh-huh. but you did want to read it because everyone else was reading it. <laughs> so it was a really, really, really hot thing to borrow your fiction. Mm-hmm. And you all went to the library and it was a very big social place. And if you remember Jane Austen's, for instance, Northanger Abbey, mm-hmm. they're all every day they go to the library to see what's in and to uh-huh. see their friends. So I thought it'd be really interesting to look at what the libraries were stocking mm-hmm. and that that would lead me to what people were reading in the 18th century, which would give me an insight into. To what their fantasies were and what their dreams were uh, in a way that the more pedestrian descriptions yeah. wouldn't so that was why I wanted to do that so while you were studying this it, it seems to
1: me and I want to I don't want to project but it seems like while you were doing the studying it to find these stories and these fantasies it, did it feel natural to you even when you were going to school that you wanted to do this studying and this research with an eye, with an eye on writing these stories, or
0: no, it's the funniest thing that I really thought that I was uh, going to be a history professor. That mm-hmm. I was, I got my PhD. I was aimed at actually a women's college. Mm-hmm. I wanted to teach in either Oxford or Cambridge and women's colleges there. And I wanted to teach uh, really the rise of feminism mm-hmm. and um, the Gothic novel, sure. which is the absolute contradiction of it. Um, And, uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher, who is so popular in the States, but I have to say not so much in England (laughs) at the time, uh, decided to close the English literature departments of many universities and freeze the posts, so I couldn't get a job. So while I was applying for jobs and not getting jobs, um, I started writing a novel, and I then realized that I'd actually served the finest apprenticeship you could have, which was that for three years, I had read non-stop 18th century novels, Mm -hmm. which is when the novel form was invented. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't have read a better load of novels for my purposes. And so when I started writing my first novel, although it was absolutely my first novel, I was very experienced in how a novel is put together. Mm -hmm. I wrote it very easily.
1: Um, I'm going to ask an impossible question, but do you have a... Like a favorite book from that 18th century literature that you were reading, one that like really it, jumped out.
0: Um, I think the I think the really outstanding one is probably Tristram Shandy, mm-hmm. Lawrence Sterne's Tristram Shandy, because it's so modernist mm-hmm. and it's so uh, terribly funny. Uh, it's never openly bawdy, but it's fantastically suggestive. Mm-hmm. So you know anybody could read it. Uh, in all innocence and just get the obvious jokes and yet there's an undercurrent of really really funny jokes and he's a real he's really playful with the reader so he says it's going to be the story of his life and I think you get to book four and he's not even been conceived and he's explaining to you all the difficulties that his parents had in conceiving. it's just terribly funny but it's massive nobody reads it these days <laughs> but it's it is a I mean it is one of the great founder novels mm-hmm. of literature
1: so when you say massive like how how large are we talking
0: I think it's something like 20 volumes. Oh, wow. I mean, I mean really massive. really oh, wow. massive. But that's, you know, that's... They didn't have television. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they didn't have aeroplanes. Yeah. You know, like, it took you forever to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, you didn't go anywhere. Yeah. And there was nothing to do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when people say kids today don't read, you go, thank God. Because <laughs> they have fascinating other lives. Uh-huh. You know, whereas in the 18th century, or me when I was at university, nothing else yeah. to
1: do. I, it's so funny you say that I... Um have been listening to our podcast know this, I'm a huge Russian literature fan. Okay. And I finally, this year, my I tackled my white whale. I, I read War and Peace at the I, beginning of this year. Yeah. And I like to joke with, uh, with everybody. It makes like, I think it's like 1,200 pages yep. and it makes like a beautiful 800-page novel. <laughs> yeah. And then it's also like 400 more pages yeah, of no. just people rolling over while they're dying and it's just a whole lot of it. But
0: I, I dare to say... I don't think it's that great. <laughs> I know it is the original historical fiction, supposedly, of sure. all time. I think there's whole chunks in it I don't like. Oh, yeah. Do you do you have a favorite? In return, then, what is your favorite Russian novel?
1: Oh, man. So I love The Brothers Karamazov, I okay. think, is my favorite. Um, I read Ibsen's Dollhouse when I was, I want to say 16. I was in a, a English class, and I remember it was one of those things for the first time I had read a book, bu- because I, I was one of those kind of... Teenagers who I would read books that were older, and I would have initially had that thought process. I'm like, I'm not gonna understand the language, I'm not gonna pick up on the context clues, and I would get frustrated. And I remember reading it and having like a light bulb go off. I'm like, oh, this is beautiful and haunting and depressing. And so that's one that sticks out the most. But from a novel standpoint, I I think The Brothers Karamazov is
0: probably my favorite. I would, I I see Your Brothers Karamazov, and I will raise you Anna Karenina.
1: Yes, that's my wife's favorite.
0: Uh, just heartbreaking. Yep. And yeah. And so much in it. Mm-hmm. So you think it's, when you remember it, you remember that it's a doomed love story. Mm-hmm. But actually, the, the story of the improvement of the estate mm-hmm. and the, the sort of subplot yeah. really fascinating.
1: My wife reads Anna Karenina once a year, and I can always tell when she's reading because I come down and she just has like Brian sobbing. Yeah. 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 And I'm like, you do this to yourself once a year. I don't know why you do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, speaking of kind of other places, actually, I have a, one last question for you. I'm curious. So if you could step outside of the 18th century British history that you are so well-versed in, what is a time period that if you had your brothers, and I'm sure that your publicists aren't going to be happy with me asking about places that aren't the ones you're writing about, mm-hmm. but what would be like a, a place in time that you would love to write about that just you probably you won't ever do it, but you would love to as an idea?
0: Um, you know, the great blessing of my career mm-hmm. has been that I started started with the Tudors, and then I wanted to write about the Plantagenets, which is back in time. Right. So I did, and that worked out really, really well. We were all very anxious that that would be okay, uh-huh. because they there was a feeling that I was a Tudor novelist, and we all knew what, how that went, sure. and that was great. Uh, and then I wrote about the Plantagenets, and that was astoundingly mm-hmm. successful, and I, I really enjoyed being able to do that. And now I'm, I'm in the period of the Stuarts, mm-hmm. and I'm going to come forward, and that's pretty well-covered... All the English history I'm really interested in, uh-huh. so I'm not particularly interested in the Romans, mm-hmm. and I'm not particularly interested in the invasion of the Normans. So, by the time, if I do live to 105 and get to 1920 in my um, series, um, I'll have done every every period I wanted to write about, okay. which will be really wonderful. And also, I'll have done. Something more than I've done so far about global history, which is that I'm really interested in the spread of empire. Of course, slavery, but not so much the slavery experience, which I think has been well explored by people who are just more expert than I am. But I am very, very interested in the impact of the Settling of America, which, is, of course, comes out of the book that I've just written, you mm-hmm. know, the English Civil War, right. and uh, the expansion of the English into India, for instance, and into Africa, which is not, into Africa is not very well told at all, not right. in either in history or fiction, but it has, you know, extraordinary consequences for the world now, you know. Um,
1: okay, last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from reading The Thailands?
0: um I hope they really love it I hope it makes them dream and uh, takes them out of out of themselves in a way which isn't like now I want to read something which is escapist and silly and funny mm-hmm. but in a sense takes them out of this world into the world of another time I think that's if that if a novel does that for you you can't really ask it to do more
1: that is beautiful but this was an honor. Thank you so much for joining
0: us today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.
2: Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Rakuten Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com.